Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. My producer as always is Lou Pellegrino. In studio guest this week, he has uh, traveled from his palatial estate somewhere in New York City. And that is Sports Illustrated senior writer Grant Wall, my longtime colleague, used to sit next to Grant Wall. He is here not just to talk to me, Grant, are you? Grant, you want to, you can jump in on in this intro anytime because it's never it never goes well. You know what I find interesting what about this is you may have tried to wipe this from your memory, but we used to be on a podcast together when you hosted the Sports Illustrated Soccer podcast. You know how many times I would get yelled at for mispronouncing <laughs> German names and Juventus. <laughs> I learned to just say Juve. Um, all right, listen, Grant is here obviously to talk about um, soccer reporting, but let Let's get the plug out of the way, Grant, because I know you're itching for it. Grant Wall has released a book. It is called Masters of Modern Soccer, How the World's Best Play the 21st Century Game. That is in uh, bookstores everywhere. And the book basically features uh, Christian Pulisic, Chicharito, um, Iniesta. Who else, Grant? Who Iniesta's else? Iniesta's not in this book. He's not? I, I don't care. Iniesta's now in the book. <laughs> Uh, Roberto Martinez. And basically what Grant does, if I'm correct about this, Grant, is you take different sort of parts of soccer um, and you go very, very in-depth with these sort of greats at these positions, whether it's a defender or a goalkeeper or a manager, as to how they do what they do and how they do it successfully. Yeah, it's based on George Will's classic baseball book, Men at Work, where he looked at the craft of baseball position by position. So uh, for me, I have seven figures in my book. Five of them are players. Uh, have a cross section of people. Tell, tell us the tell, tell us the people, just so people know. Yeah, uh, goalkeeper is Manuel Neuer. Defender is Vincent Company. Defensive midfielder is Xabi Alonso. Christian Pulisic is the attacking midfielder. Chicharito Hernandez is the forward. The manager is Roberto Martinez, and the director of football, kind of the moneyball guy, is Michael Zork from hmm. Dortmund. Yeah. Uh, the idea is to find one person to represent each of these positions who's really good at what they do but also really intelligent at explaining how they do it and so i spent two years of doing interviews with these guys watching video uh for long periods of time with the people involved and just kept peppering them with questions about you know what's going on in your head when this is happening on the screen that we're watching and things like that these are obviously all i mean you know elite level players um the interesting one to me is Pulisic. Have you gotten the most attention from that chapter just because of what he theoretically represents for U.S. soccer? You know, I think so. Uh, this is a guy who's 19 years old and is already the best player on the U.S. men's national team. And the first real opportunity, I think, for a men's American soccer superstar globally. Yeah, definitely. Uh, he's not there yet, obviously, but he has played at uh, you know, in the quarterfinals of Champions League, sent Dortmund to the quarterfinals last season. Um, you know, had a season this year that wasn't maybe as good as he wanted, but he's still very much in demand, uh, potentially to make a move to uh, to a Premier League club. And in this book, I was really pleased because he's really smart about the game, really thinks it deeply and holds his own as a teenager in a chapter with Xabi Alonso, who's won World Cups and Champions League titles. Where, how, how far did you travel? Did you have to travel, whether it was for company or Martinez? I imagine you did, at least some global travel. All of these this. interviews were done on site in Europe. So oh, wow. okay. for company, we literally were in the Man City video room, this palatial thing that they used awesome. to, you know, right next to their locker room to do scouting as a team. Um, 
you know, with Roberto Martinez, I did one interview when he was the manager of Everton, then he got fired. And I was like, whoa, that's not good for the book. It turned out to be a blessing in disguise because he took the Belgium job. He could win the World Cup he this summer. Could. Yeah. And so I went to visit him in Brussels as well when he was a few months into that. And he went into detail comparing and contrasting uh, being a club manager and a national team coach, which are two completely different things to have to do, because if you're a national team coach, you only get your players for a very short amount of time. And a terrific uh, broadcaster, actually, sort of part-time broadcaster when he uh, he wants to be. Was there anyone that you wanted that you could you ended up not getting because of access and then shifted to somebody else? You know, like, I did you pro- go for Messi or Ronaldo? Or- no, I had interviewed Messi, and so like most players, he isn't that insightful about his genius, about his skills. Um, And that's fine. You know, I'm not blaming him for that. Uh, Only 1% of players, I think, are the kind that are really intelligent and and clear in explaining the details of what they do. Guys like Kobe and LeBron are rare, right? Because they can, I think they can explain their genius, but I don't know if um, Gretzky is like that or Jordan never struck me as like that either. In some ways, I think these guys that I, I picked are there's a reason why they could become coaches someday and will right. or television analysts. You know, we've seen Roberto Martinez doing television analysis very well. We've seen Vincent Company doing that for ESPN during Euro 2016 when he was injured, unfortunately. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, these guys have that ability to break down the sport and their position into really fascinating uh, things that they share about little tricks of the trade they picked up over the years. All right, Grant, let's really talk about the reason you're here, and that is your employer Fox's foray into the WWE. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, Grant. I know you don't. Lou, I just wanted to get Lou to laugh. Um, all right, when do you, you – we're taping this on uh, – hold on, Lou, Let me since it's going to come out today because you're such a fast turnaround artist. Is it May 31st? Yes. Okay. May 31st, Grant, when do you leave to cover the World Cup? I leave June 7th. Okay. Um, you have never been to Russia before? Never. I have. <laughs> God help you. <laughs> Holy cow. Um, my God. You sure you want to cover this tournament? All right, whatever. Um, it's a certainly beautiful architecture, fascinating place. Moscow was, at least. Sochi, too. Um, so wh- how, the thing that's interesting here is you're obviously working for Fox. You're obviously working for Sports Illustrated. But you're, you're in sort of a singular, independent entity. So for people who are going to listen to this who are both soccer fans as well as uh, let's say people in the profession. How do, how does one go about covering the World Cup? It's spread over multiple cities. Um, it's not like you know you're going for a three game series for the you know the Warriors or the Cavs. It's like fascinating to me. So let people in on just how do you logistically approach it? Yeah, covering a World Cup is a total endurance test because I'm going to be in Russia for almost six weeks, and that's more than twice as long as the Olympics. That's a lot longer than a Grand Slam tennis tournament. And so what I've learned going back to my first World Cup in 1998 in France is you really do have to pace yourself uh, and you have to remember to prioritize. Make sure you sleep. Make sure you eat. Um, Don't get sick. I carry a ton of hand sanitizer around. This is like basic stuff, but really important stuff because I got sick as a dog at my first World Cup and that makes life difficult. Um, In terms of the work side of it, um, I'm obviously bummed the U.S. isn't in this tournament. Uh, Typically, I embed with the U.S. team and follow them around, which involves a lot of traveling. Uh, In Brazil, we traveled all over that country uh, with that U.S. team. 
and I won't have to travel nearly as much. I may not leave Moscow. That's a, oh, really? Tournament. So you, that's interesting. So you'll be, for the group stage two, you're just going to basically, that's going to be your home base. So my plan is, because I'm going to be doing stuff for Fox every day, uh, their studio is this amazing studio in Red, Red Square, Square yeah. uh, in the center of Moscow, and our hotel will be right near that in Red Square. And so, in my opinion, the less traveling around you're doing, even in traffic in Moscow, the more opportunity you have to watch games and do work. And so that's going to involve that work, different things. For Sports Illustrated, I'm writing a column every day, like my five thoughts on the day that just ended. Uh, We have a a daily podcast uh, with me and Brian Strauss, who will also be there in Moscow and, and around Russia. Uh, And then for Fox, I'm going to be doing the stuff I've done for them for a while, which is breaking news, uh, putting context around news that's coming out, video essays. Uh, I'll be appearing on the World Cup Tonight show that's being hosted by Fernando Fiore. Uh, so you didn't get the abdo assignment. You got the Fiori assignment. <laughs> I'd rather be with, Ke- I'd rather be with Kate Abdo than Fernando, but all right. No, Fernando's the best. Uh, nice, very nice as guy. is Kate. It's a great group of talent that we got. Oh, look at you. Going. Eric Shanks in it up yeah. here. <laughs> but no, man, we had a thing here, uh, last night in New York for, uh, for Fox sports. And, uh, it's fun for me because typically when I do stuff for Fox, they installed a camera in my apartment here in New York and I'm never actually in the same place as my Fox Sports colleagues. And I'm really fired up to be around them in Russia in the same way that it's fun at Sports Illustrated, as you know, to go to the Olympics and actually get to hang out and observe working your other Sports Illustrated colleagues. Absolutely. Um, the um, the thing that is always like kind of interesting about the Olympics and the clearly the World Cup too is access. Like what it, Now, it's obviously you have access because you work for a rights holder. So it's going to be a little bit different, but that said, can you give people a sense of what, if you were a journalist covering the world cup, like what kind of access do you get with players uh, before a game, after a game? Cause it's so different than your, like how you would, let's say cover red bulls versus Kansas city. Are you asking about a, from a written perspective or a TV perspective? I, I, let's say both, because I think people will find it interesting because you're, you're, they're going to find that your TV access is far different. Right. So if from a written perspective, uh, I learned this at my first World Cup in 98, uh, it's not like you can go into the locker rooms and interview players like we do here in the U.S. So at FIFA events, you have two post-game events where you can get interviews done. One is this big press conference where there's a podium and they bring in the coaches after a game. And they actually have headsets with UN-style interpreters, which is nice. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, And you can go in there and ask questions in a formal setting. Now, if you want to try and interview players, they have this area called the mixed zone, (laughs) la zona mixta. uh, And that is this sort of cattle shoot area where there's barriers that are set up. And it's the players have to walk through there from the locker room to the bus. So they've got to go through, but they're not required to speak to the media. The media stands there and we may badger a player as he comes in uh, and try to get some uh, some quotes. But it's clearly not a situation like in a locker room where the player is seated and can't really go anywhere. Um, and a lot of times players will just walk on by. You hope they recognize you. It's nice to have relationships with people where they will stop and talk to you. Uh, so that's really the only way post-game to get interviews done it, from a written perspective. From the TV perspective, 
so much depends on whether you're a rights holder or not a rights holder. And I was with Fox at the 2014 World Cup in Brazil when Fox was not a rights holder. And at that point, after I would do my post-game interviews, I would literally run 15, 20 minutes to a spot outside, not just the stadium, but the entire perimeter fence that had been set up around the stadium where the Fox camera guys would be standing and I would do a stand up with them, but they weren't even allowed the camera guys on site. Wow. Let me, let me ask you a question about sort of this mix zone. Uh, like do the stars of stars, the Messi's, the Ronaldo's, the, um, the hazards, uh, Mo Salah, people like that, do they ever stop or is it more you're ending up getting the, uh, starters, but not like, not, not the most famous of the starters. For the bigger stars, it really matters if they have a relationship with you and recognize you. Really? So I remember in 2006, Messi walks out and into the mix zone, and I just happened to be there, and I try to talk to him in Spanish. And he kind of looks at me for a second and thinks, I have no idea who this guy is, <laughs> right. and then he walks along, you know? <laughs> and so you're just kind of like, okay. Um, since then, I've interviewed him, so I would like to think that he would actually potentially stop. Do they stop for the local, the, 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 like, would Messi stop for the Argentine press? He would, knows uh, who those guys Wayne are. Wayne Rooney stop for the UK press. Right. Yeah. And, and so that's how it tends to work. But then you have interesting relationships sometimes between athletes and their own nation's media. Right. Like, if the they, Mexican they, national team players don't tend to like the Mexican media. They prefer not to speak to them and actually prefer speaking to U.S. media. Yeah, like so Chicharito would recognize you given the yeah. um, that you did the book. Well, that's interesting. I, you know, I, I know that, um, you know, people like Tim, our colleague Tim Layden and others who've covered multiple Olympics, Michael Farber too, would always say that the, the way to cover an Olympics a lot of times, I think you know this, is to make contact with the players and their, their reps before the event starts hmm. so you can somehow get a hold of them during the event because the access during the events are so limited outside of mix zone i have been doing this long enough that you do develop relationships with people over time i remember the first time i you know, communicated with shabby alonzo is because he followed me on twitter i dm'd him oh, wow. nice. and you develop a, a kind of a random coincidental relationship that way and he was always willing to do some phone interviews during a Euro or a World Cup. So you try and find guys like that. When um, you're in the stadium, where would you be sitting? How does the press setup work? From a written press perspective, uh, you have to apply for a seat and be given one. So just because you have a World Cup credential doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to get in the stadium for the game. You have to apply for each game, basically. You do. Okay. Uh, And And some games must be more uh, harder to get, right? There's more demand for some games yeah. than for others. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it, it's a situation where they have desks with video monitors inside yeah. the stadium. That's cool. You know, I remember at the 2006 World Cup final, I sat next to George Vesey from the New York Times, and thank God we had those monitors because when Zidane headbutted Matarazzi near the end of the game, nobody in the stadium saw a replay of it. We didn't know what had happened because it was away from the ball. But because that monitor was there, we were able to see six or seven minutes later when they released, at least on the monitor, right. the replay. You were like, oh, that's why I got the red card. Interesting. What Now, this is going to be different, obviously. And I know you got to be a little diplomatic here because of your Fox ties. But um, how much do you think will and should be covered on the ultranationalism, the, what looks like is going to be potential for serious racism, uh, whether in-stadium racist chants, uh, the worst, obviously, maybe violence in Russia um, against people of color. There are um, 
not to mention that we haven't even gotten into sort of the geopolitics of Russia and the U.S., but on, on at least to me, Grant, it seems on a soccer perspective, there is a potential for some ugliness with this sort of real hardcore ultranationalism sort of that happens at these games. There's always the possibility is what I would say. I would also say that the instances of racism that we've seen in Russia in the stands and there's way too much of it over the years, that stuff tends to not happen as much during a major, major tournament like the World Cup right. or the Euro. It's certainly possible it could happen. Um, and then violence, we've seen Russian hooligans at the last Euro cause all sorts of problems. But I also tend to think that, as was the case in Sochi when you were there, it's this special situation where, with all of the concerns, I do think security is going to be really clamped down to try and prevent what would be a real international embarrassment for the Russians if their hooligans were to do something bad over there. Um, in terms of sort of like the geopolitical stuff that's going on, um, I can tell you for Sports Illustrated, I've got a ton of control over what I choose to pursue right. and, and write about. And, and I certainly uh, will do that over there. There's a lot more uh, in, at Fox. I'm, you know, that's my second job, right. Sports Illustrated. Well, they, they're a rights job, holder so with FIFA. I mean, it's a different relationship. They, they, they different have to thing. get along with the Russians. I, I, you're an interesting case because to me, you're one of the rare people who I think can pursue things under the SI banner, that let's just be blunt, that you're not, I'm not, I'm not saying Fox would prevent you from doing it, but you would not necessarily be encouraged by them to do certain stuff, especially when it gets into the the geopolitics of our relationship with Russia, the whole idea of like, should a World Cup be in Russia? How did the World Cup get to Russia? How should uh, an American rights holder approach um uh, Vladimir Putin's relationship with the U.S. I mean, there's a lot there. And, and again, I, David Neal, to his credit, answered these questions even in an interview with me. I'm not, I'm not sure I necessarily agreed with him, and that's easy for me to Monday morning quarterback. But it's tricky for you in that you have these two... Interestingly enough, the a lot of your focus for these two roles, not a lot, but some of your focus for these two roles are different. That's maybe the best way to, to say it. To some extent. Yeah. I mean, what I try and do is make sure that my bosses at Sports Illustrated and my bosses at Fox Sports are all aware at the same time of what I'm working on right. for both places so that they can have the opportunity to use that if they want to or not if they don't want to. Um, let's get into um, uh, the – before we get into sort of some, some, some soccer and sort of you're just talking about this tournament sort of competitive-wise, um, have your – um, have your bosses at Fox told you what they expect you to be doing on the um, like the the studio show, the post game show, and what what viewers can expect from like that show? You know, what I know of right now is I'm going to be involved in the World Cup Tonight Show, being hosted by Fernando Fiore. It's going to be going on uh, in the evenings here in the U.S. Right. Um, Usually on FS1, I think more than Fox, but maybe sometimes I think it's going to be on the main yeah. big Fox quite a bit. Um, and Fernando's great to work with. He has a long history, as you know. You've interviewed him. Yeah, yeah. Um, Super nice guy. And uh, I'm looking forward to to working with him on that. But I also have learned, having done uh, tournaments with Fox now for a while, including as a rights holder for the Women's World Cup in 2015. Uh, a lot of stuff happens on the fly. You know, you have a schedule, uh, and a lot of times you stick to it. A lot of times you don't. And so 
uh, as news comes out, and we can't predict a lot of that stuff during a big tournament like this, uh, I'm sure I'm going to be chiming in uh, at different times of the day. Um, do you want to get into the state of soccer journalism in the United States, or do you want to talk World Cup right now? I'll Which do whatever you want, man. All right, let's, let's do World Cup first, and then we'll get to the state of soccer journalism in the U.S. And then I want to get to LeBron, too, because you, you uh, anytime, you know, there's sort of a uh, hearkening back of LeBron's beginning, <laughs> it always goes back to your cover story on LeBron. You did the first cover story on LeBron James when he was 16, when he was on the cover of SI. Um, I, I'm sure I mean, you probably have told this in other places, but you... Uh, you drove with him from, was it from Akron to Cleveland? Oh, yeah, which is like an hour yeah. or so. And you bought him McDonald's or he bought you McDonald's? Uh, I bought him and his buddies McDonald's right. on the way up. I and love that. And I took him out to Applebee's on the way back. And you bet SI paid for that, right? Oh, yeah. Fantastic. How tall was LeBron back then when you interviewed him? He was 6'8, I think. So he was almost, he was yeah, essentially he, he what he was, is now. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't like. He wasn't cut in yeah, like exactly. the, the LeBron okay. James, but he, but this, his height was sort of there. All right, we'll yeah. get to that. Cause, uh, <laughs> um, I, and I, by the way, before we do that, I, I read Grant Wall's story if you want. This is in March. Do you remember the issue date? March 2002. Okay, March 2002, because it's kind of amazing if you read that today, how much of it came true about sort of the prophecy of LeBron and, and what he wanted. It's like, it's, I mean, it was in a million to one shot, but it came in, it's which little, is amazing. A little eerie, yeah. I yeah. mean, like, literally in their West Akron apartment, which was a small apartment that he shared with his mom uh, back then, next to the television, they had this fake SI cover that somebody had given him, which said something like, LeBron James, is he the next Michael Jordan? Wow. All right, so I have it here. It's, uh, oh, actually, good job by SI Vault here. They've actually fancied up the... Uh, <laughs> The layout here, Grant. February 18th, 2002 issue. Uh, and the lead of the story, Grant, is um, is LeBron meeting Michael Jordan at Cleveland's Gundarina, right? Which is, I think, sort of the famous uh, meeting of LeBron at, um, at I think he was 16, um, and Michael. And the cover of that uh, magazine uh, on February 18th, 2002 is the chosen one. LeBron has a tattoo of that. He does, and Nike just released a cool ad this week. Yeah, that's right. Recreating that tattoo that he got in 2000. And we should give credit. The the editor who co- ch- who chose those that cover language is Greg Kelly. Greg Kelly, the former Sports Illustrated editor, chose the chosen one. And Bill Colson, who was the top editor of SI at the time, uh, made the decision to put high school junior LeBron on the cover during the Winter Olympics right. in Salt Lake at a time when I would have suspected that they would have put the Winter Olympics on the cover. And SI at that time was, let's be honest, super conservative, like, oh my God, how dare we put the, a high school basketball player on, right? That, I mean, that was almost unheard of for the Bible of sports back then in the day, SI. Um, and so, um, man, that, you know, that that has turned out to be a very prescient... Here's This is interesting. And we're going to get into LeBron now anyway, since we're talking about it. So here's the interesting thing to me about this. Sports Illustrated, I think we both agree, screwed up royally by putting the Michael Jordan cover, Baggett Michael. If you look back on historically, so dumb to criticize a guy for trying to pursue another sport or for whatever reason, who cares if he wasn't hitting in the minor leagues? It's so dumb now anyway. You wouldn't put Tim Tebow on the cover and say Baggett Tim. He just wouldn't do it. Not that. our finest hour. Yeah, but, and obviously Jordan, you know, said he would never talk to us again. He didn't. That, that was a financially bad move by SI. Cost them millions of dollars. Conversely, because the experience of LeBron James was so great in his first cover, he has been, that guy has been loyal to a print publication for 16 years. Um, so you have to take some credit for that in that 
he has talked about that his first cover story experience with SI was such a positive one. Obviously, being on the cover of SI, he has said this. I'm not, uh, I'm not overvaluing the um, the the um, the status of SI. I mean, LeBron has said that that basically catapulted him to a national prominence, and that relationship has probably been in the post Ali era SI's greatest relationships with an athlete. Would you agree? He's given Lee Jenkins. I would as much, say Lee Jenkins is the guy yeah, who is most responsible And our for great that. colleague who LeBron has a great relationship with. But the fact is LeBron James is, is arguably the most famous athlete in the world, or one of them. And he has continued to give, in 2018, uh, not not just obviously, a lot of this goes on the web, but essentially a, a magazine, a, a publication that still has a, a well-known magazine, he's given that place access, which is incredible to me. Yeah, and I, I would say this. I am reminded of this pretty regularly, including with our World Cup preview issues this week with my experience with Mohamed Salah. The Sports Illustrated cover still carries a lot of weight. Totally, absolutely. And like Mohamed Salah did one interview pre-World Cup with a publication globally, and that was with Sports Illustrated. So, Which the, I mean, he was jinxed, of course, because he got hurt. Right? Yeah, that's a different story. Yeah. But like the point being that like it's something that still has value, and there's no equivalent of the Sports Illustrated magazine cover in digital. Um, did you, um, after doing that LeBron interview, writing your story, What? be honest here. Obviously, we know how the story turned out. But in 2002, what did you think he would become? What did you think he would be, if you um, had to take your guess? I mean, the people I was speaking to in the NBA, I had people in that story saying, I wouldn't trade there are only three players in the league right now I would not trade to get LeBron high school, as a high school junior. Wow. Do you remember who they were? Uh, Danny Ainge, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but there were other people, too, that I spoke to. And I, but I also remember the shoe company war that was going on to try and get LeBron right. to sign with them. And I remember talking to Sonny Vaccaro He was that a, Adidas then? He had gone to Adidas. Right. And he was like, oh, this could be a $20 million shoe contract. The one that LeBron ended up signing with Nike ended up being $90 million. And this is back in 2002. Amazing. Uh, so the one request I have for LeBron, by the way, is... Right. He's he, not going to listen to this podcast, but go ahead. Okay. But if you are listening, LeBron, we have not put the winner of the World Cup, the Men's World Cup, on the cover of Sports Let me guess, since, since, since Maradona? Since 1994, when Brazil won in the United States. Who was on that cover? Um, I the, could see his left foot, right? Uh, no, was, he's raising... Actually, it's a funny cover. Uh, okay. The captain of Brazil is raising the trophy, but Al Gore is actually in the cover. Really? Yeah, he was there for 94, some okay. I guess he was vice president. Wasn't Romario or one of those guys? Or he career? was on that team. Okay, right. Um and we haven't had the winner of the Men's World Cup on the cover since then. And I think we would have in 2010 and 2014. But you know what happened that same week <laughs> in 2010? The decision. You know what happened ah. that same week in 2014? LeBron decided to go back to Cleveland. Ah. Both of those ended up being on the cover instead of the World Cup winner on the men's side. So this year, we are here again. I think he's could've... going to make a decision the same week. <laughs> and I just want to see the World Cup winner get on the cover, LeBron. So, like, stay in Cleveland. Might have to do, obviously, the um, the quality of the game. Who wins probably will determine that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, make your pitch to Chris Stone, Grant. They obviously like you. You're getting 18 cover stories in this issue, current issue. All right, so let us talk about... All right, that's LeBron James. It's still amazing, man. The fact is that you did LeBron James first... Uh, Sports Illustrated cover story is just a cool to me. That's just like a cool like thing as part of your. You're known for soccer. You obviously used to do college basketball, et cetera. But like that's just a cool thing that you were the guy who oh, wrote yeah. that first cover story, and you can tell people uh, 
in your career that when you were 16, when he was 16, like you saw it before it really got big. No, I got a lot of awesome. memories of the whole thing. It yeah. was, uh, that's very, special. that's very, very cool to me. Um, all right. Overall, in terms of the quality of this World Cup, what do you expect from it? It's really interesting how we view specific World Cups as that was a good World Cup or that was a bad World Cup. Like the 1990 World Cup in Italy was a bad World Cup, overly defensive. Um, you know, World Cup 86 in Mexico with Maradona, it was like a great World Cup. Yeah. So I find it interesting how these trends develop inside a tournament. And I think we could see a lot of surprises in this World Cup uh, when you look at, you know, Germany's sort of the the obvious favorite. Uh, but I would also say that Germany... Are they the betting favorite? Uh, yeah, they're the Vegas okay. favorite. I'm picking Spain, which is kind of the number four team. Yeah, that's Vegas. a bit of an upset. But I think you have, By the way, Grant has Spain over Belgium in the, in the final. final. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would, that's not, that would not be my pick, but that's interesting. Yeah, keep in mind, my picks over the years have not been great. Right. But... Um, I, Germany's history over the years is they don't tend to do very well in World Cups after they win a World Cup. Yeah. Uh, and so they're extremely deep. I have them going to the semis and losing to Spain. Uh, I think Uruguay, another team I have surprising people in getting to the semis, is a team that is one of those sleeper teams that actually could win a World Cup when you look at the, the combination of veterans like Luis Suarez and Edson Cavani and Diego Godin, but also guys who are emerging like Andres Betancourt. Uh, I, there's some really interesting teams that I think could challenge. I think Belgium could challenge to win this thing. You have Uruguay beating France, which I imagine most people would not have, right? That's, right. that's your upset sort of on if, if, the way you have the brackets coming in the round of 16. Right. You have Uruguay beating Portugal. You have France. France, Iceland would be awesome, by the way, if that happened. France beating Iceland. And then I think most people would probably take France as the betting favorite on yeah, that. Yeah, right? France could be the most talented team in the World Cup. My sense with France is, is that one out of every four or five games, they have a stinker. Hmm. where they just don't do it. And we saw it in World Cup qualifying. They had a, a home tie against Luxembourg, which is insane. And I think in the knockout rounds, I have a hard time imagining France putting together four straight great games. All right, Grant, I'm lo- I, I am looking at this, and if I am correct here, let me as I'm looking at your predictions, do you not have Argentina getting to the round of 16? I have them going out in the group stage. Wow. Now, again, I realize that the talent of the Argentine team is... Um, nowhere near as it's been in the past, but they still have the best player in the world and a couple of other pretty high caliber pieces. Um, that's got to be one of your bigger kind of predictions here, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, what I would say is that Argentina is my adopted country, uh, and so I spent a lot of time there over the years. You like beef, follow, clearly. Follow, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, follow everything, Asada, that, I should be everything that they do really closely. <laughs> Uh, and the great mystery is why Argentina, with all the talent they have, not just Messi. Di Maria that, still playing with them? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, he's there. The, Sergio Aguero is fantastic Aguero, with Manchester yeah. City. What are you but insane? How are you taking well. those guys? Not those guys, out you gotta, did you watch World Cup qualifying? I did. They did not look good. They were. They barely qualified. Yeah, they were brutally bad, and they just qualified in the last game because Messi decided I'm going to do everything on my own. Had a hat trick at Ecuador, and. That's what I want to see here. Is Messi just going to say, screw it, I'm going to do everything, and that's how we're going to either make it or not make it here? Because I think there's some frustration on his part that they have never really built something around him that allows him to win a World Cup. I don't think it's going to happen this time either. You think Messi is James Harden, Grant, is what you're saying? (laughs) 
Um, that's an interesting prediction. I that I would not have the balls to do it. I, I admire that you're. It's going a tough for group it. too that they're in. They're yeah, in, they they're in with group. Iceland, Nigeria, and Croatia. Who's their first game? Remind me. Iceland. Iceland. Ooh. Argentina is a great. That's got to be the first. That's got to be the best. That's got to be the best group stage. There's opener. some good ones though. I mean, like you've got on the first weekend Portugal, Spain. No, that's pretty. Uh, great. You've also got Mexico, Germany. I mean, these are great wow. games in the first days of the tournament. A tough draw for the Mexicans, man. Mexico, Germany. Is it? Is there any conceivable way that um, Portugal and, and Argentina can play? What would have to happen just off the top of your head? Is it possible we can get a Messi Ronaldo in the round of sixteen? I don't have it in front of me. But it'd be tough. It wouldn't be a round of sixteen. It would have to be later. It would okay. have to be later, yeah. All right, I have to look at the schedule too. Um all right, what else sort of strikes me? Okay, you pick Spain to win. I, that is interesting to me because I think correct me if I'm wrong, but there is sort of the conventional thought that um Spain is a little too old to win, or what what's the thought? The or thought, trapped between two eras a little bit at the moment? The thought is, is that they don't have a superstar striker okay. at this point. And, and I get that. They don't have one of the world's top five center forwards at this point. Uh, but we've seen teams win World Cups before without that. Uh, my first World Cup in 1998, France's forwards uh, were terrible. And they still won the tournament. Good midfielders. <laughs> and Yeah. And, and you talk about good midfielders. That's Spain. Uh, when you look at David Silva, Andres Iniesta, who's not in my book, Richard. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I apologize for that. I can, you, I can tell you read the book, by the way. Uh, I skimmed and, it. I'm going to be honest with you. I skimmed it. <laughs> and, and, and other guys, too, like Tiago. Uh, Isco is a guy who plays so much better for Spain than yeah, than, he does. He plays well when he gets the chance at Real Madrid, but he's just not a, a superstar for Real Madrid. And then you've got guys, everyone's favorite villains, uh, villain Sergio Ramos, PK, uh, uh, next to PK, and then you've got the world's best goalkeeper, David de Gea. Uh, no, who, I, yeah. you look at those guys and the way they played together during qualifying in the same group as Italy, they embarrassed Italy, which didn't qualify. Uh, I think. Come on, Grant. Who is that? Is that Iniesta calling you to be in the book? My apologies. Who's who? Who? I wonder who called. Uh, Eric Shanks. No. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was Eric Shanks you'd taken the call. But I feel really good about Spain. Um, and this is a team like leave that in, Lou. No matter what. I think that Spain is very undervalued, especially when you look at Vegas right now heading into the tournament. What? It, what are they? Like ten to one. Uh, I don't know the exact odds are, but I think they're like the number four pick generally behind Germany, Brazil, France. I think that's it. All right, Grant, listen, you look like you're hungry, so let's do this incredible <laughs> ad here. What a segue. This time of year brings us two things, graduations and Father's Day, and the gifts that go along with them. Before you buy your dad another tie or Grant's book, Masters of Modern Soccer... Or that grad a balloon that will float away. Ask yourself this. Does my dad or grad like wings or sports or better yet, both? If the answer is yes, then get get everybody a Buffalo Wild Wings gift card. Right now, if you purchase $30 worth or more in-store or online, they will give you a $5 bonus to keep for yourself. That is a gift that, that gives back. How generous of you, Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings Beer Sports. Terms and conditions apply. That's Buffalo Wild Wings. Check them out while watching Grant Wall during the World Cup. All right, Grant, that was what we call a live read. In Do you the think business. they have Buffalo Wild Wings in Russia? No, they have uh, prisons, basically, uh, is what they have, and borscht. I will say, you, uh, my, here's my honest, like, a, a true thing, honest, again, 
Russia was fascinating. As an American, I'll be very blunt. I didn't necessarily feel like they loved me being there, but the World Cup's going to be a totally different experience. Um, Lou is laughing. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just, it's all about the Americans, basically. Uh, but the one thing that is absolutely fascinating, just in terms of, um, in, in terms of something you should see, is the architecture of that city is stunning. Including the subway. The subway, which is st- sort of back, they built in the Stalin era. It's, it's like, it's the biggest sort of, amazing looking structures you've ever seen these gigantic um these gigantic subways so it's well worth sort of going around the city checking out the traffic is it's probably the worst it's probably the i've never been in a city with worse traffic than moscow i have been in beijing which has more people but moscow traffic was just crazy um food depending on what you like and depending on how much you spend can be great to really not great the one thing i will say and this was a great thing about the city i found that people under 30 love talking to Americans and love talking to you. It was sort of the, the cold vibe I got was sort of older Russians who didn't mm. seem um, to love us being there. I was with a uh, group of journalists who went there in 2000 and, uh, in 2009. Um, but, you know, you got to see the Kremlin. You got to see Red Square. And, um, and it, 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 really, it really is a fascinating place. But it's also... Um, What's the word I'm? It's a little anxious. If you're an American and you don't speak the language, it's a little. There's some anxiety there. A little bit of a wild west feel. Um, you know, be careful about sort of who whose car or taxi you take. It's a little. You know, it's sort of they have a reputation sometimes of uh, of, of maybe swiping your cash or, or or charging a little bit too much. Well, I know so, Fox has security yeah. actually. Uh, you know, for everyone, which is smart. Um, Probably more security for the bigger stars than you, Grant, like eh, uh, but, Alexi uh, Lalas, Rob Stone. <laughs> but I, I understand all that stuff, and you know, I that's think part. It's, it's also it's part. It's part of the about, assignment, though, right? Right, yeah. and you know, every location has uh, stuff that you got to be smart about, whether yeah. it's Russia or Brazil or South Africa in 2010. Yeah, I mean, and uh, you know, and conversely, you know, we heard so much uh, those of us who covered Sochi for Sports Illustrated about Sochi, and could not have been sort of smoother. Um, you know, organizationally was unbelievable, but you know, you always, and this is such an American centric viewpoint, but you know, you read up, especially if you're sort of, you read up about sort of how these, um, events happen and people being displaced and countries like Russia or China, just basically government doing whatever they want to people to sort of get stuff done. It's, you know, you do sort of thank yourself a little bit sort of uh, being from, from this country, um, yeah, we, got, we got our own issues. But, we do have our own uh, issues, yeah. but yeah, but you were in China with me covering the Olympics and yeah. Well, again, fa- so. like that—that that was le- Russia was a little more disturbing in that, like, uh, um, although you know, seeing the tank in front of the media center in China and the the the, 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 the border guards were not fun, but uh, that just felt more lost in translation to me hmm. I, because the language was so different. Um, if you don't Mandarin, obviously, I didn't understand, and that that just felt very. As opposed to the Russian, you do understand. Well, the, at least I felt like in Moscow, I felt like I could sort of manage it more, maybe reading subways and sort of more mm-hmm. people seem to speak English than they did in Beijing. This I'm talking about outside the Olympic yeah. perimeter. That said, a lot the, the, the truth is when you cover these events, especially for an American company, you're in such a bubble sometimes that it doesn't... You, it's, a, you, it's fantasy land. It is fantasy In some land. ways, you know. Yeah, you get, mean, you get things catered to you and it's... You know, both of us have stayed in hotels in these foreign countries that are in five-star hotels. So it's not, I mean, I'm not pretending it's tough. It's just, it's odd, I guess is the best way to say it. All right, let's finish up with, um, is there anything else you want to talk about World Cup? Any other team you want to highlight? Iceland, I mean, do you, uh, what's what's realistic for them? 
They're a fascinating they're be a darling team. In this I, tournament. I have a story on them in our World Cup preview issue. Uh, visited Iceland for a week last month, talked to soccer people, players on that team. I don't think they're a flash in the pan. You know, they eliminated England from year 2016, which is crazy when you think about it uh, and how much money those players were making for Iceland versus those for England. Um, but it wasn't just a one-off, you know. Iceland then won its World Cup qualifying group with some really good teams in it. Croatia, which is in their group for this World Cup, uh, Turkey, and Ukraine. Iceland won that group to qualify for their first World Cup. This is a country of 340,000 people. Amazing. This is like, that's the size of Peoria, Illinois, Richard. I mean, like, this is... And it's just an incredible underdog story. Their coach, Hamir Halgrimson, is a dentist. Literally a dentist. We went to his island that he, he's is from. Is he a good dentist, you know? Yeah, we talked to like awesome. people there who are like, yeah, he was my youth soccer coach and my dentist. Yeah, amazing. And this guy is coaching against Messi and Argentina in the first game of the World Cup. And I think they can win the game. Mexico, England, Egypt, and Iceland are the four Sports Illustrated World Cup covers. Did you have a say in that? Did you pitch those? Adam Duerson's the guy who guides our coverage, uh, senior editor. Actually, yeah, Grant Wall is really the guy who guides the a, coverage. A much higher title than that. Uh, you're also, by point. the way, on page four of this magazine. You're everywhere. Your photo is on page four. It's only once every four years, though. With Yeah, that's true. <laughs> With uh, Luis Miguel Echegarre, who has been on Luis this, uh, Miguel Echegarre. Echegarre. You're the worst at pronouncing these names. I know. I love names. that guy, though, too. Are you dyslexic? Luis is such a great guy, too, so I apologize to him. Uh, follow that guy on Twitter and follow his work. <laughs> He's carrying Grant Wall the way uh, LeBron has carried the Cavs. All right, Grant, let us finish with this. The state of soccer journalism in the United States. We have MLS teams popping up in new markets like Nashville. Atlanta is an incredible success story. With Cincinnati a, this week. Cincinnati. Um, Atlanta has, you know, 80,000 people and those crazies there. That's been, that's been great. Um, so the league sort of continues to grow and expand. Um, there is interest in this country. In terms of the World Cup, it'll be even though the U.S. isn't going to be there, the people are still going to be massively interested in this tournament. It may not get the ratings of 2014. It's still going to be a major, major television um, kind of uh, event. So wh- where does where do things stand now with soccer in the U.S.? We're, we're getting more teams, but we're also in a uh, a place obviously where traditional sources like newspapers are are hurting badly, if not dying in some places. Can can a young person who's 22, 23, 24 realistically have a career in, in soccer writing, broadcasting, journalism for the next 25 years? And if so, how would you approach it? You know, I don't think it's that different from asking the question about media and sports media in general. Uh, what I would say about soccer is, is that there is a real feeling demographically now uh, that soccer football, meaning NFL, college football, and NBA are sort of the three core sports moving forward. Uh, When you see studies that show teenagers in this country that soccer is right near the NFL as their favorite sport to watch, uh, that kind of stuff is getting noticed in media. And if you're a young person who wants to be a soccer journalist, I think you have a much better chance down the line of getting a job than if you want to be a baseball or ice hockey. Oh, that's interesting. Writer. Um, you know, again, I realize these are the competitors, uh, but do you, um, John Skipper, and again, if you can't go here, I understand. I know you work for the competition. John Skipper, as ESPN's president, was one of the most important people in this country in terms of soccer. He pushed for that network to have soccer. He bought up rights. Um, 
The fact is, if ESPN really promotes a product, it's very important for that sport. He's now gone. Um, it's going to be interesting to me to see what the new management of ESPN does, because while they might not be soccer people, they have to know that the demographics are such that you'd be you'd be foolish not to get in the um, the soccer business. That's sort of my jumping off point for do you, you do you see interest in the next ten to fifteen years from the ESPNs, but maybe beyond that, could we see a Facebook or a Google or a sure. Twitter or Hulu get in there? Because I think we might. If you buy into the demographics of the country and you buy into the youth, the median youth, the median age of soccer, which is younger than a lot of these other sports, um, I think you got to jump on it. Yeah. And, you know, when I look at it, I would say this. I think everyone agrees that ESPN and John Skipper were the ones who made the World Cup a big-time event in the United States. Absolutely. They are the ones who get the credit for that. Uh, You know, and then in some ways, from a World Cup perspective, uh, they were a victim of their own success because they they showed you could – this was a valuable property. And then then all these other folks became interested as well. Yeah. and so I look at, at what they're doing, and I think ESPN's, uh, you know, obviously their long-term rights deals are with MLS U.S. Soccer through 2022, uh, as does Fox, have that deal, and Univision in Spanish. Um, Cantor. Yeah, and I think keep an eye on, you know, Spanish-language uh, soccer in the United States. It's a gigantic, gigantic audience out there, and, you know, there's a reason why I've been getting my Spanish ready for prime time to be able to do to work in Spanish and not just English because uh, Liga MX draws more people to watch their games in the United States than the Premier League or Champions League. Absolutely. All right, don't get fired for answering this question. But um, one of the things that David Neal said to me, and David Neal, by the way, is the executive producer of Fox's World Cup coverage, um, incredibly long and successful career in sports television production, including um, producing Olympics for NBC. But he, and clearly this is a Fox initiative, It's very important for them to get American voices on the World Cup. Um, Four of the six teams have a U.S.-centric or U.S.-born play-by-play person. How do I sort of phrase this? I don't really understand why that is so important. By the way, I think John Strong's great. I'm glad he's – I'm happy for the guy. I'm glad he's there, the top dog there. But, like – Ian Dark or John Champion or Martin Tyler have helped grow the sport in the country in the same way having a U.S. voice would. Like, it's so weird to me that why is it important in soccer to have a U.S. voice? Um, I realize you're not going to have this same argument. Why is it important to have a U.S. voice in baseball? Well, there's always only been U.S. voices. I get that. But am I missing something? Like, what, what is it? Like, if you have a great British announcer, like, that's great. Like, you should just be psyched that you have that person. Yeah, I guess what I would say is, first off, I work for Fox Sports, no, so keep that in mind. I should, no, I feel how, like I how can I it. avoid it? You, but, you but, have a Fox shirt on right now. It says, go Fox. <laughs> <laughs> but what I would say is, is that uh, I think it's great that American voices who are knowledgeable about soccer are going to be, a lot of them are going to be broadcasting the World Cup this summer, uh, American voices in English and Spanish with Telemundo. Uh, what I would say also is you're going to have Derek Ray uh, who's yeah, tremendous solid. doing yeah. games for for Fox Sports, who obviously does have uh, an accent. Uh, and for me, in the big picture, I just want to know if you're good or not. And so where you're from doesn't matter that much to me, but I think it's a sign of the growth of the culture of American soccer that 
These are soccer people, these Americans who are going to be broadcasting this World Cup. It's not like someone is being brought in from another sport to try and find some bigger audience uh, because that hasn't worked in the past. It's been tried a few times. And so, yeah, I'm excited about it. I think also there's a history of some TV executives at other places or in the past using the term authentic to mean British. Yeah, I agree. That, and, and that's, 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 that's kind of drives me nuts, yeah, actually. Yeah, I agree I with mean, that. That's a fair criticism. That's, know, that's silly. And so I don't have any issue at all if there's going to be a lot of American voices who are smart and good at their jobs who are bringing the World Cup this summer. And uh, I also think there's a lot of great people, like you mentioned. Ian Dark is probably foremost among them of people who've had a big impact on the sport here in America. For sure. Um, all right, don't get mad at me if I watch Cantor occasionally. I love when that guy on the... Uh, he, he called three matches once at the same time. That was the, uh, mm-hmm. oh, it was the World Cup qualifying on the last day uh, when the craziness oh, yeah. happened. It was, I, I, it was he's amazing. He's a hero of mine. Like, I yeah. always tell Andres, the first World Cup I ever watched, which caused me to dive headfirst into the sport, was 1990 when he called every game off a monitor for Univision with Norberto Longo. And Norberto I fell Longo. in love with oh, the sport through his voice. And it was absolutely fantastic. My family, we didn't have cable television, and Turner had the English rights, so I had to watch Univision and Andres, and I'm glad I did. Are, are, you, are you proud of me for pronouncing at least some of these names right today? Isco, Mosala? Not bad, Mosala. Mosala. Yeah. Ronaldo, is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to say it the way a Brazilian would, it's Ronaldo. Ronaldo. You can just call him Ronaldo. Uh, yeah, I didn't, I, we, didn't get in, we didn't get into any of the really uh, tough German names, though. Uh, those are usually tricky for me. Karl Heinz Rummenigge, is he still playing? No, he's retired. He retired <laughs> in, I think, 1986. One of the great NASL players <laughs> of all time. I love that guy. He's a scoring machine. All right, Grant Wall is the guest. He's off to Russia. In, we're training him for some for some for some uh, spies. Basically, we're we're moving him there. Um, he's off to Russia to cover the World Cup. He has. It seems like every cover story on this week's Sports Illustrated. The World Cup 2018 preview, but more importantly for him, he is the author of Masters of Modern Soccer, How the World's Best Play, the 21st Century Game. That is by Grant Wall. You can get this in bookstores, obviously Amazon. Where else can I get this, Grant? Wherever you buy books. All right, wherever you buy. Are you happy with how the book is, the books are going so far? Yeah, I mean, it's, has David Beckham bought one? I know he's a big fan of yours. Oh, from that's previous another books. story. But yeah, I mean, it's we been never a, got into Beckham yelling at a press conference. I love that. It's, it's one of my favorite pieces. It's piece been of video. Uh, a a fun process. This book and the response has been great. All right, Grant. Listen, I wish you the best of luck in Russia. I always, as you know, enjoyed you as a colleague and sitting next to you for our time before I, you know, made my way to that to the new publication that I work for. Um, you know, so good luck. Uh, you know, try to. Try to get some young person there and, you know, teach him, teach him about the soccer business. Who's it going to be? Who's a protege going to be? Got to figure that one out, you know. Now young Chris Chavez? Um, he's awesome on running. Yeah, he's going to run. Is there anybody who's like a 23-year-old now at SI who's like just a soccer-obsessed geek? Um, there's a lot of people who work there now who are really into the sport, yeah. which is totally different. From yeah, when which when we You started. and I joined in the 90s. No, for sure. We, there were very few of us who were like really into it and uh, – um, the cool thing is that's changed. You know, Mark right. Moravik was one bet way back in the day, but I feel like now there's a lot of people who are just into it. And sometimes you, you know, you'd go into the office and you'd see soccer on TV, which is amazing. And you are definitely a big reason for that. All right. Grant Wall, everyone, please check out his work and, uh, and support him as he, uh, as he heads over as a diplomat of this country. To you sound like I'm not Cup. coming back alive. No, you'll be fine, Grant. 
I don't know if the, I don't know who's going to win. I don't think your prediction is going to be good at all, but you'll be fine. All right. My thanks to Grant Wall, who is uh, sticking around the studio and doing some soccer work. But uh, we segue to our second guest, and that is Julie Kliegman. She is a copy editor at The Ringer. Uh, That publication has been in the news lately. Um, Julie is on here because she wrote a piece on May 7th uh, under the headline of the state of mental health care in the NBA. And it was a really, really interesting piece that examined sort of how the NBA, I think, I think, and I imagine Julie agrees, is sort of at the forefront of sports when it comes to being honest and transparent about issues of depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses when it comes to their athletes. And that's such an important thing, I think, to, um, to end stigmas, especially uh, men are still reticent, and particularly athletes, uh, given sort of how they are looked at in this country, are still very reticent to talk about this publicly. That's kind of what made stuff like DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love, their, their transparency is so extraordinary. And uh, Julie Kliegman joins us by phone. Hey, Julie, thank you very much for joining us on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, Julie, so you're a copy editor by trade. I know you've written before. Take us through the process of how you came about um, reporting and writing this story. Sure. So uh, mental health um, has always been an interest of mine. And, you know, like you were saying, it is so interesting in sports because athletes are um, sort of conditioned to not express negative emotions. They have to be tough. Um, There are all these stereotypes out there. So um, when I saw that DeMar DeRozan on the Raptors and Kevin Love of the Cavs, you know, both came forward with their experiences with mental illness, I thought it would be a great time to sort of check in and see where the NBA is on this because as you know I'm sure um, players have come forward in years prior and you know it didn't seem like to me like there had been any sort of larger movement toward uh, mental health awareness and I was kind of wondering if it might be different this time around and you know so far it seems like it is. Julie how do you for a piece like this um, how do you go about um, the process of reporting? Like, are you, did you try to reach out to DeRozan in love? Are you, do you want to, is part of your sort of guidepost to, you want to talk to the league about how they approach it league-wide? You want to talk to specific teams about how they approach it? Take, I think, listeners through the process of how one would go about trying to uh, report on this topic. Sure. So first things first, I reached out to DeMar and Kevin Love. Right away, as well as Kelly Ober Jr., who has also kind of said he can identify with Love and DeRozan's experiences. Um, so the reason you start with, with guys like that is when you write about mental illness, it's really important to uh, make sure you're including the perspectives of people who are mentally ill and, you know, people who have this first-person experience, um, because that's always a really important aspect to uh portray when you can. And, um, you know, understandably, those guys were in the middle, uh, you know, getting ready for playoff races. So they declined to comment. But, you know, that happens. Uh, I'd still hope to talk to them in the future, um, maybe when they're not as busy with their seasons. Um, So from there, yes, I I did, of course, want to reach out to the league itself, as well as the Players Association. especially because um, with the most recent collective bargaining agreement last year, it did put in place, as I say in my story, you know, this um, mental health and wellness program that they're just getting started on. Um, 
So I, I thought that was really important. I really wanted to talk to a, uh, a psychologist who has worked with an NBA team, which I was able to do. And, uh, you know, because uh, Love and DeRozan, um, you know, understandably weren't interested in talking at the time, I, I wanted to talk to players who have dealt with this before. Like Meta World Peace, you know, is always cited in these conversations. Um, I had a great conversation with Shamiqua Holdsclaw, who was a pioneer in the WNBA about talking about mental health. And, you know, was talking about mental health and professional basketball. I think pretty much, you know, before most other people, uh, I wanted to talk to Royce White because he's such an outspoken critic of the NBA and how they deal with mental health care. Julie, why, in your opinion, as you reported this, um, and we'll get to sort of Brad Stevens, who I thought was like really interesting. We don't often see coaches that, um, not just quotable, but just that sort of that honest and transparent about this. But wh- why is this still in 2018 not talked about more in sports, in your opinion? the Again, like I said, and I think you would agree with me, the NBA seems to be the forerunner in this, at least in terms of their athletes um, not being afraid to talk about it and being honest about it and it, maybe just sort of adult about it. But we don't hear about this as much in other sports. And is it still uh, – is that based in sort of this kind of culture of uh, of masculinity or whatever? Is it is it endemic to the leagues? But it's kind of amazing to me, just given if you look at the statistics of how many people in this country could be on antidepressants or uh, an anxiety medication. A lot, of, most, so many of these stories in sports are just still not out there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with you that the NBA. Um, is at the forefront compared to other leagues. And, you know, I think, I think one reason for that might be that we see more activism in the NBA in general. It's more, um, it's even encouraged and supported by, by the league. Whereas, you know, you obviously see what's happening in the NFL where players are discouraged from speaking out, not just about racial inequality, but, but on other topics as well. And, I think um, the NBA is a league that's known for the personality of its players. It's known for individuality. We see these players without helmets. We see them, you know, walking into the locker room in their street clothes. There's there's a lot of emphasis on individual players and playing styles and off-court personalities. So I think that inherently lends itself more to athletes being more, you know, able to and not discouraged from speaking out against mental health issues. And, you know, you're right. There's, you know, there's a huge stereotype in the country in general. You know, as you say, uh, there are a ton of people on antidepressants. I'm on antidepressants, but but still a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about that, even when they're not star athletes, you know, who have to keep up a super masculine image. This affects everybody. And, yeah, I do think when you're in the spotlight, that attention is magnified, that nervousness about seeming weak is magnified. Um, and yeah, when you, when you are a man, it can, you do feel pressured. I think a lot of times to keep up this masculine energy, uh, you know, men don't cry, men don't show weakness. They, they've got to intimidate their opponents and maybe they won't seem so intimidating if they've asked for help. Julie, if you can, can you take listeners through as best you understand if there was a player in the NBA who mentioned to uh, management or whatever the resource that would exist at a team that they were struggling with some um, depression, anxiety, what you know, uh, 
um, sleeplessness, whatever it might be in terms of mental health, what would be the procedures that would happen after that player went to the team? Are you aware of what would be next? Yeah. Um, so this will obviously vary a little bit from team to team because everyone has different staff members in place and every team has sort of a different worldview about mental illness. And, you know, uh, they make hires on that accordingly. And, you know, but I would say in general, if a player spoke out to a coach or maybe a team physician, uh, you know, about struggling a little bit, um, if they are one of the teams that has either a sports psychologist or a clinical psychologist on staff or consulting, they might try to connect that player um, with that psychologist and just kind of, you know, it's probably someone that the player has already met, at least in passing. Um, so that can be comfortable for them. Uh, a player might also say at that point, hey, you know, I really rather keep this separate from my business in the league. Like, do you have an outside source in the city that you could recommend so that I don't feel like my mental health is being watched so closely and maybe affecting uh, my game or my playing time? Um, because players do worry about that, even though what they say to a therapist or another team professional would be kept confidential. Um, so that, that would be the sort of process. That process, I think, is changing a little bit right now just because the NBPA has, has um, instated their mental health and wellness program. And, you know, just today they hired a director for that. So hmm. uh, that, that program can offer players um, additional resources. I think they're still trying to figure out exactly um, what role that program will play in the league, but... Um, there's probably going to be more guidelines around, you know, when a player is too sick mentally to, to play in a game on a certain day. Um, I know Keon Dooling, who's a former NBA player, um, he's involved in this program as well. So he'll be kind of liaising between uh, the Players Association and the league itself to try and get players' resources that way as well. So players who want help and are ready to speak up, do you have a number of options? Julie, did you speak directly with Brad Stevens? I'm getting, I sort of, as I read your piece, that strikes me as a, a some kind of one-on-one conversation. Yes, we did speak directly. Okay. What, have you, what is your assessment as to why Brad Stevens is, as a coach, seemingly at the forefront of this and unafraid, not, I'm unafraid is not the right word, but, um, he seems to, in my, this is just obviously my interpretation, but he seems to have a very acute understanding that these problems are real, and the best way to approach it is to, is to be honest and transparent about it and to have some kind of program in place. I just, I do not, your, his quotes in your piece struck me because I'm not sure I've ever read a professional coach sort of go to that place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think one factor is that Brad is, uh, a little on the young side for an NBA coach and um, not to totally stereotype, but I do think in general, a lot of times you see younger generations being more open-minded about um, mental illness and, you know, and that's not just limited to the NBA. That's, that's in general. Um, also before uh, Brad Stevens started his uh, college coaching career, uh, he worked for a pharmaceutical company and he was telling me that, his experience there kind of really opened his eyes to how much good psychiatric medicine can do for people who are struggling. And he just realized what a great tool it was and how important it is to 
open these lines of dialogues and get people the help that they need. Julie, it strikes me that um, you may agree with me. My, my sense is you probably do. But th- this could almost be maybe beat is too strong a, a sort of a term or place for it. But it strikes me that one one could do, you know, 20, 30 stories a year on this topic, given the whether you would profile a person like Shemequa Holtzclaw, whether you would try to um, whether you would try to identify what a specific league is doing or not doing like the NFL or or MLB. And then obviously just maybe the different kind of um, the different kind of mental health struggles that would exist in athletes, like are athletes more prone to anxiety versus depression? Are athletes more prone to schizophrenia versus paranoia? Whatever it is, um, is it your intention to continue to pursuing this topic? Because I think there it's there seems to be at least in terms of journalistically so much more that hasn't been covered on the nexus of athletics and mental health. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Um, You know, it is a sustained interest of mine. Uh, Last year, I wrote about uh, mental health and college um, athletics and kind of the revolution that's happening there with more uh, with more college teams making mental health professionals available for players within the athletic department so that they don't have to leave campus or, you know, leave their comfort zone to seek help. Um, so that's been a really great thing. And you're right. There are so many other topics to cover, not just in the NBA, but in sports in general. So I do, I do continue to look for stories on this because I'm really passionate about mental health personally. And, uh, you know, I do think this is an area where a lot of interesting changes are happening, you know, in sports. So Absolutely. There's there's a ton to be done on this front. Julie, from your last one here, from your reporting, um, how would you compare what college athletes, the kind of help college athletes can or cannot get versus the kind of help pro athletes can or cannot get? Um, uh, that's a tricky question. Uh, obviously, pro NBA players are they're getting paid for their work. Um, Whereas college athletes typically, you know, are not unless you're counting scholarships that some of them have. Uh, so I, I think in that respect, it can be a little easier, but there's also a much brighter spotlight on them. And I think that can impede um, them wanting to seek resources. Uh, whereas college players, for the most part, obviously there's some star players, but, you know, if you're a volleyball player or swimmer, you know, uh, or if you're playing any sport really for a Division three school, something like that, you're you're not in the spotlight every day. You probably feel a little more anonymous, um, not maybe on campus, but you know in national news certainly. So um, I think um, I think college athletes, you know, in that respect, have a leg up, and that they work with coaches who are really. Uh, set on, you know, nurturing players and, you know, they have all these athletic trainers at their disposal that they've been with for four years. And if you're, say, an NBA rookie coming into the league, uh, your coach might not be as, you know, personally interested in your development. You might not have access to anyone who's known you for years, like teammates or coaches or or physicians. Um, so, so it's tough. I, I think there are, you know, pros and cons to each, but Overall, you know, I'm happy to say that it looks like it's getting easier for both groups to get the help they need. 
Uh, Julie, are you happy with me that I have not asked you a Brian Colangelo question during this interview? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll leave that to um, I'll leave that to the rest of the ringer staff. I think that's fair. All right, Julie, and by the way, before I sort of take her out here, um, I, I mean this: the articles like the ones Julie has done for the ringer really help uh, destigmatize mental illness in this country because and i think i'm sure julie would agree with me there's such a spotlight on athletes that they have so much power that if they are transparent and honest and talk about this it really could help uh people particularly younger people so the more these stories get out there um the better like julie i have a passion for this my mom's been a therapist for a long time uh has dealt with a lot of people with clinical depression and anxiety and um the, the more these stories get out there, the stigma goes away. And that's ultimately how treatment can happen. So, Julie, on a personal note, I really appreciate you writing it. And then just professionally, I thought it was just really, really well done. Um, Julie Kliegman is a copy editor for The Ringer. Uh, go back, please, and check out her piece from um, May. Let me make sure I get this exactly right here, Julie, as we let me pull this up. Okay, May 7th on The Ringer, and that is the state of mental health care in the NBA where she sort of examines how the NBA approaches mental illness. And obviously people uh, who follow this have read about DeMar DeRozan, Kevin Love, et cetera. Julie, thanks so much for giving me some time today on the uh, sports media podcast and uh, continued success and best of luck at the ringer. I hope you continue to write about this topic. Well, thanks so much. Uh, great talking to you. All right. Back in the studio, my thanks to uh, Grant Wall and my thanks to, uh, uh, Julie Kliegman. Um, and again, like I said, uh, check out her work and it's a really important topic. Uh, I don't know her. I just called her, called her out of the blue, but I was pretty psyched that she was able to, uh, uh, have some time today to come on and talk about that story. It's really important. Um, please, if you like this content, head to the sports media with Richard Deitch podcast, head over on Apple podcasts and, um, give us a rating and particularly a five-star rating. Cause that will be the way this podcast continues. Previous ones um, before this, we are coming off a roundtable with John O'Ran, Chad Finn, and Robert Littell about um, uh, the Wall Street Journal examination of ESPN as well as some other topics including uh, Fox grabbing the WWE, ESPN grabbing UFC. Before that, Joe Testator on the Monday Night Football uh, analyst uh, tryouts, Peter King, who is leaving Sports Illustrated this week. He was a guest and we sort of went through his reasoning and his career. And before that, Doris Burke. And Cheryl Reeve, Doris Burke, the uh, terrific analyst and sideline reporter for ESPN. Cheryl Reeve, the coach and general manager of the Minnesota Lynx. So if that's the kind of podcast uh, stuff you like, please uh, listen to us. Check that out. Lou Pellegrino, of course, grinding away with all his other podcasts, including this one. I appreciate uh, his help. Thank you to everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.